0: Welcome to the Barfly Podcast Season 3. My name is Jeff Burkhart, Barfly columnist for the and IJ and author of the book 20 Years Behind Bars, The Spirit of the Ventures of a Real Bartender, and its sequel, 20 Years Behind Bars, Parole Denied. Today, my co-host is Kevin Blum, restaurant consultant and former community director of the online review site
1: Yelp. Welcome, Kevin. Have a drink all night. Welcome back to the Barfly Podcast. We are very happy to have H Joseph Ehrman back on the program. H is the owner and proprietor of Elixir, one of San Francisco's oldest saloons and also one of the most celebrated bars in the country. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how San Francisco politics and bar politics mix in today's crazy, crazy world. So, welcome, H.
2: Sure, Jeff. You've had your battles, like I have. A, I've come up against the ABC a lot, and they're usually pretty tone deaf. They I always say they're they really kind of run like a mafia because they they make their own rules and then when when you push them on certain things they say we don't make the rules, we just have to enforce them. If you want to change the rules, you have to talk to your to your legislators. And then, you know, and they change the way that they enforce the existing rules based on politics. And so it's really hard to navigate around them. But I I do give them credit for that quick move because if you've ever been to Elixir, you know one thing we have is a lot of bottles. (laughs) So (laughs) I carried a a very big whiskey inventory with a lot of rare whiskeys and and I've been collecting for 18 years now. So I just started selling off inventory and people bought. And as you know, we had the bottles and then we could sell cocktails. We started selling cocktails. You know, I had Fresh Victor. So we started in 2014, Fresh Victor, and we start we launched as a consumer product, and we were selling in dragers and stores like that, Molly Stones, and it was doing well. But we were in a 32 ounce bottle, and we decided in 2018 to go down to a 16 ounce bottle because our our mixers mix pretty well two to one with spirit. So three ounces of our Mexican lime and agave ounce and a half of tequila. And boom, you have got a margarita. The 32 ounce was a, was 10 cocktails and we felt consumers needed less. So we went to five five to eight cocktails and a 16 ounce. And then we decided to not launch that and stick to focusing on on-premise activity because we were doing really well with Disney and, and Orlando and getting into hotels and such. And so we said, let's not focus on the retail for now. And I had just opened a number of casino accounts in Las Vegas in like February. And then mid-March, this hits. And all of a sudden, our entire business had shut down. But fortunately, we had these consumer bottles designed and ready to go. So we pulled the trigger and we launched it. Within six weeks, we had direct-to-consumer sales through our website in seven states in the West in 16-ounce bottles. But we still had our 64-ounce bottles for the trade. And I had a bunch of them. So I just started making cocktail kits. So I was able to like pair my bottles with these easy to mix fresh juice mixers right away and put out cocktail kits. Before we had the sixteen ounce bottles, I had these sixty-four ounce bottles. And you know, at two to one, a sixty-four ounce bottle pairs perfectly with a liter to give you twenty twenty-five cocktails. And I was like, Oh, that's a lot of cocktails. I you know, <laughs> I've got, being a bar, I've got mostly Leaders, of course, they have a lot of 750s too, but bars buy more liters and retail sells more 750s. So either way, it pairs really well with a jug, you know, 64 ounce jug. And I was like, oh, these people, you know, people will buy these kits and and they'll come back every two or three weeks. And as you know, like people started drinking, yeah. <laughs> and so I was selling these cocktail kits, you know, a liter of tequila and a 64 ounce of Mexican lime and agave. People come back two, three days later. They'd already plowed through 20 or 30 cocktails and they were ordering <laughs> again. And then eventually our 16 ounce came out and you know I could pair you could mix and match and stuff. So I made all of these different cocktail kits with my mixers. and then I was making other ones too, pairing them up with making Manhattan kits and old-fashioned kits. So we really had a robust business in cocktail kits. and a number of my bartenders stepped up to help with deliveries and so we set up a whole delivery system. We were originally doing deliveries, I think, four to five days a week. And then, you know, we adjusted with, realized what business flows were and such. And basically, anytime there was a legislative change of what we could not couldn't do, we you know, made changes to adjust to that. We could open up, we opened up. If we, we could do to-go service out the front door, we started doing that. And I have to give my, my team credit. They all got furloughed right away. But as soon as I could bring anybody back, I started bringing them back my my general manager Shay. He came, he helped out right away. I mean, everybody got a break, you know, and, and everybody. We, we of course everybody was as confused as anybody and trying to stay home and be safe and be healthy and not get sick and and so I wasn't going to put any of my team in jeopardy. So I did a, a, everything myself up front, and then Shay jumped in and started helping me organize. And, and then as we were able to bring more people into the fold they stepped up and they were making deliveries and they were batching cocktails and they were, you know, we're being very safe and following all the protocols and everything, but we got through it. We survived. We built a, we built a couple of cool parklets and we're still, we're still alive. The restaurant business is all about
0: adaptability. The bar business, in particular, you never know what each night's going to be. You have to adapt to what the circumstances are, whether there's going to be a busload of tourists that drop off right in front of your place, or, or you know, whatever. So that's one of the things about uh, something like Elixir, where it's it's a, it's not actually a large scale operation, really. You know, ha- how many yeah. employees do you have
2: right now? Seven.
0: Yeah, but back then, ten. You look at some of these corporate places that have a you know a hundred. People ab- above the regular day to day staff, these upper management people, and those people really, I think, have a have had a much tougher time adapting to this because often they don't know what to do and they can't just turn on a dime like you guys could.
2: Absolutely, and and you know, I think that's where we see a lot of attrition in the in the business now. In 1992, I was. I was running a restaurant in Washington, D.C. called Roxanne and the Peyote Cafe. It was two concepts in one building. And one night I was sitting there doing payroll and I realized I'm the lowest paid person on an hourly basis (laughs) in the entire company. I was 22, you know, (laughs) and I think a lot of people made that realization, like I'm busting my hump for this company. And it's not worth it. And so that's why a lot of those companies are really hurting to get people back. Those people didn't want to come back to those jobs. Who, who would? <laughs> so there's a, it's interesting. I think there's, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and I pay attention to a lot of news. And there's obviously a lot of talk about the changes that are coming. And uh, the industry has needed a shakeup for mm-hmm. quite a, a long time. Whether it's everybody going to salaries and getting rid of tips, there's going to be, whole, going to be new business models. And it's we were already living on 5 to 10% margins before this. And yeah. now things are even further pressed. So All these
0: shouts about the death of the restaurant business are all, all hyperbole because anywhere you go, if, I mean, you've, you've been in, in Europe and if you go to third world countries, they all have restaurants. They just don't look like our restaurants. Yep. So you, you think of Anthony Bourdain in Vietnam sitting on that plastic bucket eating at a card table. You know, that's, I mean, the restaurant business will find a way. It'll just look different than it has for the last 10 years, which, you know, having been in the restaurant business all that time, I think that's a good thing. I agree with
2: you completely. Like, You know, and I, as an owner and an operator, I, I constantly think about how am I going to do this? How am I going to, op- how am I, how am I going to make it another 18 years and adapt to this and, and do it in a way that benefits my team so I can continue to keep loyal people like I have, you know, I don't have any ego about being a, a trendsetter or a you know a leader but I I don't want to be like the, the last guy to make make
1: the change <laughs> <laughs> you know you mentioned uh, when you started elixir what is it 2003 right yep so after the whole dot-com implosion and here we are now <laughs> you know so many years later and dealing with a whole different kind of economic cultural implosion. How do you, I mean, this is sort of a very broad question, Uh, probably can be answered many ways, but how have you seen San Francisco change in this time? And have you noticed new challenges, aside from the pandemic, of running a a bar, a business in the city?
2: I think that there's some upsides to what the pandemic has done in that there has been a bit of a culling of the herd. That's sad for those that lost their businesses, but I think you probably would would all agree that we were overloaded with bars and restaurants prior to it. And not necessarily good bars and restaurants. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you have too many, too many, there's too many distractions and a lot of them are not good. It it turns people off. And there's a lot of reasons that we don't want an overload. That I think is going to be one of the most helpful things in moving forward is that you know whether whether or not they were bad operators or they got out because they realized it or they just didn't want to do anymore or they you know they weren't making money to begin with whatever it is the cream rises right so hopefully a lot of the the best ones and a lot of the great ones did went away too which is which is even more unfortunate places that will you know we will miss that won't be back but I hope that as the physical reality of this virus starts to subside and. We do get back to a, a, a normal where, you know, it won't be a new normal. We'll have a, a thriving era like a lot of people predict. I don't see it yet, and I don't think it's going to be here for quite a bit. There is a, a, a lot of negativity around San Francisco right now because there's a, a lot of things that need to change, and it's up to our political leaders to do that. And quite frankly, I haven't seen it. I have not had much help from the city of San Francisco through all of this. The state has been more helpful. The federal government has been much more helpful. But the city of San Francisco has fallen on its face, in my my opinion, as far as helping the bar and restaurant industry. They've made some good changes and some good moves, like making parklets permanent and stuff. But there was no financial assistance. You know, every grant program or whatever they put out there closed within hours or days <laughs> and m- nobody I knew got any of the money uh, or any of the help. All the problems of with homelessness and dirty streets that have driven away the the conventions and which is kills the hotel business, which if, you know, people don't come for the conventions, they don't bleed out into the neighborhoods and spend their money when they're not at the conventions. All of that, you know, the failure of the government to handle that as I've seen in the 21 years I was in San Francisco is a shame. And, uh, I really hope they figure it out. But as I always said, I did my part when I lived in San Francisco, I, did my best with my career to do something positive for the city, help build a culinary culture that added to tourism, it added to the richness of people's lives while living there. It helped create a whole new thing and made San Francisco uh, a focal point of the culinary world on many levels. But the government people who decided to make government their career, they did not. And I'm not gonna give up my career to go into government to try to fix it. So I hope that they can get out of their own way and I hope that the people can stop being so divided in order to help rebuild it and stop chasing out the arts, welcome the arts back in. The whole argument that, you know, a city right. is always in change is true. A city is always in change. But at some point, you're going to go through your ups and downs.
0: You also have to protect your, your the golden goose, right? I mean, the restaurant yeah. industry, restaurant hotel industry is San Francisco. If yeah. you don't protect that uh, and, it, and it leaves, it's incredibly difficult to get it back. Right. It didn't develop overnight. I mean, it it took years to get to that point and they, they didn't seem to value it. But they still don't seem to value it.
2: And then you, you chase away your people that, that made that. Right. And then you, you're not going to have it. You know, people are if it's so hard to open a restaurant or a bar in a certain place, people are going to go somewhere else.
0: And you're seeing that you're certainly seeing that I, I'm in Marin, of course, and, and Sonoma County is on fire yeah. right? because it's cheaper. Yep. yep. And uh, and the government, you know, is supporting the local businesses and, and helping out people, and really wants that to happen, as opposed to making it as difficult as
2: humanly possible. I mean, I left, you know, I left for family reasons, find a, a better place to, to raise my daughter. And well, you've moved, you've moved out of California, right? Yeah, I moved to Boise, Idaho, and I love it. It's great. And I'm not, you know, I didn't come here for business reasons. I didn't come here to open a bar and I didn't didn't sell my bar and I'm not abandoning San Francisco on a business level, but, you know, I'm not incentivized to open more business and and do more in San Francisco. I'm incentivized to maintain my business and grow it and make it better. But to reinvest? Nope. I I don't see why anybody would even move to San Francisco to do that. That makes me sad. Yeah, it is sad.
0: Like I said, the the whole, I mean, San Francisco, as much as New York, or maybe even more than New York, is certainly a mecca for cocktails and the whole resurgence of the cocktail scene. And uh, it's sad to see what's happening.
1: I'm just curious, though, H, how do, how do you run a successful bar in San Francisco and live in Boise, Idaho? How do you make that work?
2: I have a phenomenal team. And you can listen to all the business podcasts and read all the books you want. And it's it, it all comes down to that. You know, I've got I've got a great management team that have been with me for a long time. Nick and Shay in particular have been with me for over thirteen years. they they run both the bar and our beverage catering business, Elixir to go. Nick is in charge of that and Shay runs the runs the bar. I've got a great lead bartender, another Nick, as as my daughter calls him, the other Nick. Um <laughs> we have some great bartenders and we've got some, and we've got some newbies too. So we had some new people that have come on and we've got a few people that were with us for a while and, and worked, uh, worked through us with us through the pandemic and, and helped us stay alive. And then they, they stepped out to fill the void at other places that needed leadership and experience. And I've always said, I'm very proud of my, my people that have, that have come through Elixir and gone on to do great things, open their own bars or work in, in, as brand ambassadors or for brands or, or, or even other stuff, move on to other careers. You know, I love, I love that we can be a place where people can learn and grow and and, then take their skills and get to develop, develop their careers. And then we bring in new people behind them and, and do it again. And that's unusual.
0: You know, that's, I, you hear a lot of the squawking. We can't hire people. We can't do this. And that part of it is a lot of these newer companies can't identify talent, can't train talent and can't bring people along. And if you can't do any of those things, you're you're relying on someone else to do it for you. And that becomes a big problem where if you're self-sufficient and, you know, I mean, I would imagine you could walk behind a bar anywhere and train anyone to bartend. But a lot of these companies, they open without someone like that. And then they wonder why they can't hire
2: people. Yeah, totally. I've long had a focus on education. I mean, I turned it into a successful consulting company called Cocktail ambassadors. So that's another one of my businesses, and and with cocktail ambassadors, I I focus on professional beverage education for spirit companies, where I've either developed education programs for those companies or I execute existing one. I love teaching, and I so I do it as a consultant. That's where I put my consulting energy, but I I have had a long standing education program internally. Before the pandemic, we were doing. We had mandatory two two sessions per month. One is usually completely spirit-focused, where we go deep dives in, into different categories or products, and the other one is more like business and community-focused. So just that alone, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy and focus. To do that for you know my team of eight,
0: but it reaps rewards. Those people again, like you said, you're not doing this just to, to generate another sale. You're, I mean, you're actually bringing people along and
2: educating them and allowing them to participate in your passion. And I see, and I see it, you know, the, the fact that my team stuck with, with us the last couple of years like that is a testament to how much they value it. So I, I enjoy not only sharing all of my, you know, I've been blessed, right? The, the success, the success that I saw because of cocktails, making cocktails that led to the consulting opportunities, which led to invitations to distilleries. I've traveled all over the world, studying spirits, studying Baijiu and China to Armagnac and Gascony or Pisco and Baruch, I've been everywhere. I get to share that with people on a regular basis. And I, I love that as a traveler. I love being an educator and I love inspiring people to do better and do more because what we do in this industry is fun. I love my job. I love this industry. I would say that I was not born to be an accountant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so don't worry about tomorrow. For today.
0: This concludes Season 3 of the Barfly Podcast. Thanks to all the industry professionals who have joined us over the last three seasons. Be sure to tune in in February when we continue with Season 4. My name is Jeff Burkhardt. Thanks for listening.